folks and welcome to Strategy Bites. I am the co-founder of Oak Tree Talent Group, a specialist strategy and transformation recruitment agency. Strategy Bites is a compilation of career stories and insights from the market's most experienced executives. Many have gained their strategy toolkit from management consulting. In each episode, we ask the best of the industry's talent to share the highs and lows of their careers and the best bits of advice they've ever been given. They will give us a glimpse of what their day-to-day lives look like now, warts and all. Our aim is to give inspiration to the ambitious strategists out there and give them an understanding of what is possible. In each episode, we will ask guests for a read, watch or listen to recommendation and a quote or value that they live their lives by. on the Strategy Bites podcast is very well known in the management consulting world. John Lydon, the former managing partner of McKinsey ANZ, joins me today to chat about his journey and his passion for helping organizations to create broader societal value. Um, So John, thank you so much for joining me on the Strategy Bites podcast. Obviously, um, Many, of, many, of, many people in the community will know who you are, but for those who don't know you quite as well, can you just give me a little bit of your, uh, of your background and overview of uh, where you've been? <laughs> well, if I go right back, so I'm English. I'm Australian now, but I started out as English, a bit like you, I suppose. Yes. <laughs> and I grew up in a small town in South Lincolnshire in the UK, which... Uh, you know, was not a place associated with real business. I didn't really understand much what business was. My mother was a hairdresser there. My father uh, worked in the potato merchant trade. He ended up running the transport uh, lorry delivery of potatoes and picking up from farms, things like that. So I was always quite interested, but never had a lot of exposure to business. Um, But through uh, that, sadly, you know, tragically, my father died when I was 13, um, which, you know, obviously terrible thing to happen. But you grow up fast. And one thing that I did then was started working entrepreneurially just in I got jobs, but the jobs then would earn like two pounds an hour. And I felt that it was better to be doing other things, right? Whether that was selling oranges in a market stall or distributing computer games or, you know, these days I'd probably be a teenage dot-com billionaire or something. But back then it was just very much fundamentals of trading and business. So that was really where I got my first business education. Um, I got to university, which again, from that town, there wasn't, everybody did that, right? There's the first person in my family to do that full-time. Uh, and through that opened my eyes as well to more opportunities. And from that, got a job with Citibank, which was a wonderful place to learn in the kind of early 90s. It was that place was going through a lot of restructuring. And these days you might call it you know, technology focused change. And it was wonderful for me working there to start to learn a lot about business, even though at that time I wouldn't really have seen myself having a career in consulting or going anywhere near Australia. Mm. So after Citibank, you did an MBA, is that right? After City, I did four years there and they were encouraging me to go and do an MBA. Uh, so I went to INSEAD, which I remember Susan Lloyd Hurwitz, I'm hearing her on uh, another interview, I think she did, saying that a year at INSEAD was a real change, life-defining, kind of career-defining move. And it was for me as well. Uh, so I went off to Fontainebleau and found myself in just such an eclectic community of people from all around the world. 
and what a vast array of different topics that you'd learn. And going from quite an operational and IT and change background to Citibank, which had been a wonderful education, to suddenly see all these other things, strategy, finance, entrepreneurial, organizational behavior, culture. It was an amazing thing to do. And I was very lucky to do it that year. Of course, a lot of the education as well came through the fact that there were you know, 70 different nationalities and all the different cultures and also all the opportunities you get just to have fun and meet new people right? in, a, in a wonderful hotbed of people in their late 20s and early 30s, uh, all exploring. So what was it that drew you then to consulting and, and McKinsey in particular? Yeah, so again, you would have won a lot of money by uh, betting that uh, <laughs> I, would, I would have bet against ever ending up in consulting or McKinsey. In fact, at City, some consultants came in once and I was a bit of a skeptic, right? I was running this small department and these consultants came in trying to say, oh, you need to change and what to do. And I'm like, they're not adding any value. Like, what are they here for? You know, we're absolutely fine. Classic, I get to live that experience again when I'm talking to clients today. They're probably coming from that same place that I was, very understandable. So I thought, no, consulting's that one place I'll never, never go get into because <laughs> I can't really see the value. Um, so then at INSEAD, I met people who were from McKinsey and also from BCG and Bain and other places that had, you know, were part of the groups and sections and lessons and dinner parties or skiing trips or whatever I was in. And you know what? They were all incredibly great people not just smart and brilliant, and of course they were that too, but actually really believed in people and great friends and friendship and uh, community. And I thought, yeah, there's something in this. They're all really smart, but they're nice people as well. Um, maybe I should explore this consulting thing because uh, clearly it's more than a coincidence that all these terrific friends have spent time there and a lot of them at McKinsey as business analysts. So I think through that, I applied to consulting firms. And the next thing was the interview process. Well, as I was doing lots of other interview processes for banks and industrial companies and whatever, the consulting ones were just fascinating. They were all about real world problems and you could talk about how you'd approach that, the questions you had, where you were curious, what you thought you needed to do to help solve it. And I think that really sold me. And the McKinsey process in particular, I thought that interview process and the people who were interviewing me, yeah, I could see myself like them. And uh, I thought, yeah, let, let's go for this. And then you know, to my surprise, they made me an offer. And after some thinking about it, I thought, no, I'm going to go and learn. I'm going to go and learn from McKinsey and uh, hopefully have some impact as well. And that was that. And that was uh, now 25 years ago. <laughs> I mean, that's quite a consulting career. I mean, you must have tackled all sorts of, like you say, real life problems over the years. What was the most challenging or gratifying? I think before I answer that, I'll say it was quite challenging then to join McKinsey for real. This was in mm. the London office. I think I still have the evaluation from my first six months. And Annika, let me tell you, it wasn't a great one. <laughs> I think it says something like, John, your first six months in the firm have been mixed. And I thought at the time, oh, that's okay. That's like not too bad. But then I learned actually in McKinsey language, that's a really bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> So you better buck your ideas up or you'll be sort of out in, uh, in six months. And I think it said something like, you know, while you're 
entrepreneurial and client relationship skills may serve you well later in your career. We recommend for the next six months, you need to focus on some of the basics <laughs> of analysis and problem solving and presentation and so on. So, um, you know, that was the first, uh, I think, shock, but it turned into a highlight because I found my next engagement manager really engaged with that and said, okay, John, I'm going to help you. And that particular manager became a wonderful uh, coach and mentor to me and really put effort in to help me and learn what I had to learn. And so that was quite a highlight that people talk about consulting and being an apprenticeship model and feedback makes you stronger, even tough feedback. Well, it was true. It was yeah. true and I experienced that. So that was a real highlight that I've seen repeated time and time because I've made plenty more mistakes, you can believe that. Um, plenty more evaluations like that one over the years, but always uh, someone's there to really help you grow and learn. Then in terms of clients, I probably remember three real highlights, um, which were both challenging and gratifying to have been part of the team. So early on, uh, in fact, where that manager, where I worked with that manager was in a mining company in the UK, was going out of business quite quickly. It was five hours from London on a train. No one else wanted to do it, but clearly with a performance review like the one I just had, I didn't have a whole <laughs> lot of choice. Uh, so off I was on these train journeys at like six on a Monday morning down to the remote part of the UK where this mining company was, not knowing very much about mining at all. And I loved it because here was an industry that employed a lot of people, I think it was about 3,000 direct employees and probably 20,000 in the community where this was the only show in town. Uh, it respected all the laws of strategy I'd been taught at business school and through McKinsey training. So yes, there was microeconomics, it was supply and demand, you had to compete in global commodity markets. But also the challenges were as much operational and cultural as they were strategic. And I worked there for three or four projects in a row because there was a sense of real purpose that there's a town depends on this place. And due to global competition, it's just gonna be out of business. And then where is this place going to be? And together with the, uh, the management team, our consulting team, we set about transforming, helping them transform that company, but with a real purpose to preserve as much employment as possible and to preserve the industry. Um, for you know, a, lot of, a lot of good. And clearly they had to make money as well. So the shareholders also did well. And you know, it's been through a couple of changes of ownership since, but those mines are still operating and still uh, quite productive actually. And no one would have predict, predicted that 25 years ago. So that was quite transformative. I also give that some credit for getting me to Australia because when a mining uh, project for a global mining company that's got a lot of operations in Australia came up a year or so later. I was one of the few people with that deep experience of helping turn a, an operation in a community around. Um, so I was on a plane to uh, this part of the world. So I'll credit that with uh, getting me down here for what initially was a project and turned into, what is it now, 23 years or something. Yeah. <laughs> So that was one. I'll give you a couple of other highlights. There was one, you know, everyone remembers where they were on September the 11th, 2001. It's like uh, terrible things obviously happening that day. And we all looked on that and said, what is the world coming to? 
I sort of remember where I was on September the 12th uh, as well. So I think it was uh, later that same day almost, one of the partners here had a call from a client that was hugely exposed to the US economy and had seen what had happened when those planes flew into the buildings and said, there's going to be a serious uh, dislocation and a downturn. We will be affected in the sector that they do. Uh, we need some help. And that same night, I was part of a team. I was an associate partner by then uh, in the client's office, working out with them, what were they going to do with this quite sprawling global company? And then a week later, I was on a plane. Right? I was on a plane to the US, I was on a plane to the UK. It was actually quite interesting flying. You were sort of belted in. You couldn't get up to go to the bathroom, right? In the, in the US domestic flying at that time because we had to help and they needed that help right now. So that was quite, again, uh, challenging because we got on those, you know, no one knew what the answer right. was, but we were solving it with the client. We were just being curious with the client about what was possible and then how to mobilize their people uh, to, to really help. There's a lot of similarities with that mining piece, even though this was definitely not mining. Uh, and then, you know, carried on for at least a year. That was a global travel special. I was like every two, three weeks <laughs> going around the world. Um, Luckily, we didn't have children then, but uh, it must have carried, you know, didn't see a lot of me that year. Uh, so, yeah, I, uh, I found that a real experience. I, I learned so much while helping. And then I guess the final one that I remember is a company I'd served on and off for 10 years by then, that in uh, about 2000, late 2000s, suddenly got a hostile takeover. Right, hostile takeover bid came in. And I think it probably came in on Thursday or Friday. I remember spending the weekend with a team of consultants just outside in saying, well, we've got an opinion on this. This does, something doesn't seem right here. And we knew a lot of people in that company. So we were on the phones, we were on email, trying to piece together a story, which was a different story to the narrative that was uh, being told by the bankers uh, at that time. And then because of that teamwork and the camaraderie and between clients and consultants, all people we knew that were in the client that was targeted, as well as people in our team that had worked with them, we were able to put together a different story. So I presented it to the CEO in the middle of the night, you know, one night, because that was the time scale, this time scale they were working on. And that, again, very quickly was uh, part, of a, part of a team yeah. that uh, worked for a long time. Uh, to eventually the resolution of that uh, that takeover. Goodness. All of those, you know, all of those, Annika, when I think on it, they were all where the consultants were part of a bigger team of clients and consultants working together on a big challenge, which was, there was a lot of purpose in there. Mm. It wasn't just the bottom line. It wasn't just the answer. There was a real purpose as to why we were doing it. Mm. I mean, you, there must be many, many more you can sort of pinpoint as uh, exciting or challenging, but did you always know that you wanted to be a partner or did you have a crossroads moment in your career where you reflected and thought maybe a different career pathway might, might suit you better? I suppose that first review after six months, I was <laughs> quite actively thinking what other pathways would suit me better. <laughs> and, uh, you know, people do think they'll go in consulting for two years, I guess. I was really enjoying it. 
and I was really seeing the, the chance and impact. I, I remember just when I was a new engagement manager, what clicked with me is I'd sort of taken, I think the client I'd just recently been working with to back to that mining company in the UK because they had some stuff in common. It wasn't a mining client, this other one. It was in industrial equipment. But I thought, well, the mining company needs industrial equipment. These guys are trying to innovate. Let's put them together. Hey, it's a good way for me to get a trip back to see my old mates right, that I've worked with too. And we'll just see if they can learn from each other. And I'd just done that. I wasn't asked to do that. We weren't being paid for it. No one you know, had suggested it would be a good idea. I just thought, hey, why not? Let's give it a try. And when I told my current team, can I take like one day off to do this? They were all fine. So I went and, uh, and it was amazing. And I suddenly saw the power of being able to put these different people together and facilitate a conversation where they both actually got a whole lot out of it. And I was on the train back um, and I thought, well, this actually, there's some things there that really resonate for my current client, the one I just started with. And I came up with something new for them as a result of having been in the conversation. So I thought, there's three different organizations here. I haven't come up with anything brilliant, but I've put two of them together, reflecting on the implications for a third. There's something in this mm. where we can be, if I was in any one of those companies working there, I would not have had that same perspective or ability to do it. So that was, I think, when I said, I can see the potential for consulting to have more impact than say yeah. that was to join up one of those companies. And then of course, through that same period, remember it was the first dot-com boom. At the time, a lot of my colleagues were leaving to be sort of dot-com entrepreneurs. And I was always quite entrepreneurial, as I've said. So that was a real calling and I got some specific offers. But then, you know, it was always, I think I can be entrepreneurial within McKinsey. Mm. And as long as I can keep doing that, that's going to scratch that itch, right? Yeah. I don't have to go into a startup or whatever. I have huge respect for some of the people who did that. And the learning is tremendous, I think, that you get from actually doing it for real. But um, yeah, I think this was what convinced me I could be an entrepreneur within the firm. And also that I could help connect multiple parties in the pursuit of sort of impact and learning. Mm. rather than just being in one of those. So that would, you know, it took a while to get elected a partner, right? That was the other thing. That was not obvious because at the time, this is coming out of the dot-com bust now in the early years of this millennium. There was not a lot of work around. So again, I had to get on the entrepreneurial bike, if you were, and uh, you know, go to places that I probably wasn't very familiar and in some cases wasn't very comfortable but all with the uh, ideas that we want to help and we want to team up with clients and do things that you know they don't think are possible so that's what consulting has been for me to be able to help people and to get them to places where they don't you know, think it's possible but you help them build their courage and capability and help them get there Mm. So, I mean, obviously, when you're thinking about partners of top tier consulting firms, I mean, work life balance is something that many think that you would have very little of. I mean, what's the reality for partners in top tier firms? Well, I think it's different for different people, Annika. And a lot, there's a lot more that's possible, perhaps, than, than you think. Now, that's easy for me to say with a level of seniority of 25 years experience that I would not have seen that when I was going through it. So that is, I think, as we do, 
um, you know, with my successor, Angus, in the firm now, he leads these sort of discussions incredibly valuable, incredibly well, just helping people think about different ways of working and what's possible, not just doing, you know, the way it's always, always been done. Uh, so even, now even in that context, right, when you can have flexibility, you should take advantage of flexibility because there'll always be times when you can't or especially back in the days where we used to fly around a lot, right? And whether those days all come back or not and how quickly they'll come back is something worth talking about. But back in those days, there were times when you wouldn't have that flexibility and balance. So it was important to make the most of it when you could. Mm. And it's how you prioritize. And probably, you know, if I was to be very self-critical here, as an early partner, senior partner, there were things I did that I would have said, oh, it's not good for work-life balance, that I didn't actually have to do them or I didn't have to do it that way. So what was motivating me? Was it a sense of duty, maybe? Was it my insecurity that I felt I had to go there or be part of that thing? And actually I didn't. Colleagues could have done equally or better job than me. So I think that looking at myself, could the, the flexibility of work-life balance that I did in the end getting a lot more off came from changes in myself and how I was thinking about my role and my own capability, insecurity, and where I should add most value, as opposed to anything structural or in the consultant profession. Yeah. And do you think that clients are will expect management consultants to be on client site as much as they have been in the past? Or do you see consultants doing less travel in their future, obviously post-COVID? Yeah, I think we've learned a lot, haven't we? We've really learned a lot on what's possible. I think a year ago, people would be saying, oh, is consulting even going to survive? Can it be possible when you can't travel and everyone's locked down? And from what I see in Kinsey, but also most of the firms, they're as busy as ever, right? There's lots of opportunities, adding a lot of value, having, having impact with clients. So we've seen a way that it is possible. So I suspect that some of that travel will come back, but it won't be what it was. No. We'll make smarter choices. Now, there's a couple of watch outs though, because it's not just about the travel. There are people, I think, in some of these firms that have worked in a very different way. Let's say you joined a year ago. I've got people, I went to a team dinner the other, the other day. It was the first time some of those people had had that experience, right? Because they joined a year ago and they were more working remotely and linking in with teams through Zoom or even great tools of Miro and, um, you know, lot, lots of different things. But, um, yeah, I thought there's a human experience, right, that we, we can't let that go as well, yeah. which is really the collaboration and coaching, which some of it right, in person makes sense. You yeah. do that, even if you've got to fly to do it sometimes yeah. but not every week not relentlessly getting on planes at early monday morning and uh i don't think that will necessarily come back the same way no i definitely think the consultants i'm speaking to are actually miss missing the face-to-face -face, um connectivity with clients and their colleagues so it's uh sort of at first it was a novelty that's sort of starting to work wear off working from home five days a week. So. Yeah. Um, and John, you were the managing director of McKinsey Australia and New Zealand between 2013 and 2019. So going from that first initial performance review where you were considering your career path beyond, uh, what did you do to get that top job? 
Uh, well, first of all, I wouldn't, I think seeing it as a top job wouldn't be, wouldn't be right. Yeah, that's <laughs> not really how we see it here. And um, so managing partner, office managers, we call it internally. Um, that's something where, and I, I had to learn a lot of this, right? It's a servant leadership role. So essentially you're there to serve, right? Much more than there to lead or direct. And I think if I was to, you know, some of the feedback I would have got that I probably did a bit too much leading and directing and not enough serving in the early couple of years. Uh, but uh, luckily with the benefit of feedback, I learned and got better uh, through that period. So I think, um, yeah, it's, it's there. Uh, people are, you know, managing partners or office managers for the times, right? You get really selected by your firm and your peers. So I don't think it's anything necessarily that I did. It was just at the time. Uh, people saw that I had potential to bring uh, something that they thought the firm needed. And yeah, that concept of servant leadership, that if you're outside McKinsey, you probably don't fully understand what that means. Um, it also doesn't mean, by the way, or at least not in my interpretation, that you just do what the existing senior partners think. Right? You have to serve the institution. You have to serve the next generation as well as the current or the previous generation. And some of the times you have to serve the global firm as well as the local partnerships. You have to serve clients. You have to serve the country. So some of that gets quite complex. And you know what? I was just an apprentice all the way through, just learning and making a ton of mistakes. <laughs> uh, but I loved every minute of that, that role. At the same time, Anika, I, I tell you, I don't miss it, right? I don't miss it a bit. I loved every minute and don't miss it a bit. So that probably meant the duration was just about right. Yeah. But the role was very different when you went from partner to the office manager role. Yeah, there were things that were different. Of course, we served clients right, all the way through. And I worked with clients all the way through. But there are also other things that you do. You know, you have the privilege of representing the firm in different forums. Um, you are helping partners where you can, and you are helping evolve, right? You, you're in the end helping the firm evolve uh, to meet the evolving needs of clients. So if there's a thing that would probably define the time I was managing partner, it was that evolution of uh, a firm which was, you know, primarily strategy and sort of organization, a little bit of ops advice to a lot you have this image of McKinsey being great uh, presentations you know, in the boardroom it, it was a lot of that um, to something which had a lot more diversity and different ways of working with clients and different types of colleagues and capabilities that we had through things like implementation and restructuring and digital and analytics and I think that was probably the thing I reflect on this was the biggest change that the partners led. I supported them, but the partners led it. Mm. They worked with clients. That, and that's what I reflect on that. says, wow, that was good, right? We yeah. changed the place a bit. I think we changed it for the positive. Yeah, I understand. You roughly tripled your scale and partnership and really evolved your offering in line with client demands. I mean, how different is the work that the firm's now facing compared to say 10 years ago. I know you sort of said it was yeah. more about corporate strategy and it's diversified quite a lot to analytics and operations. Yeah, yeah I think, and, and yeah, the tripled, I don't think is any maybe massive achievement because perhaps it was smaller than it should have been in the first place, right? So um, a lot of the things we thought were major innovations like implementation and other firms were doing that all along, so. Um, what's different? I think it's the type of work. It's also the way we partner. We truly partner with clients and willingness to construct arrangements where we, we partner with them. 
Um, the types of work much more in digital, I think digital transformation. And uh, that's, I think, one of the hallmarks of this current uh, generation with Angus's leadership and some of the other terrific colleagues who've joined the firm. And we are showing a real intent there as McKinsey to, uh, to lead, right? to lead through the tech transition and to support our clients, not just to what they should do, but help them actually do it, help them stand up the ability to do it in their companies. Mm. So I think that, that's a big difference. Yeah. I, I also that one of the, you know, our, our ability to have impact working with the public sector, that's something that's relatively new as well. And um, wow, 10 years ago, probably that started. But now the wonderful colleagues who are committed to that path and, uh, and leading the practice, I think it's a very important part of us because if we want to help build a you know, better Australia and New Zealand, then that's a capability you can't do without. Mm, yeah. And what do you see are the biggest challenges facing the consulting sector in, in the years to come? Uh, look, I don't know if I'm skilled to speak on the whole sector, Annika. I mean, it's... <laughs> You know, so, so there's some on the client side and there are some others that I'm not sure about, but I'm going to put them out there because your audience will have an opinion. Uh, anyway, you'll have an opinion. Get your, your opinion. So look, we've got to keep evolving with the clients and even a bit in advance of where the client's stated needs are. We've got to look at what's coming around the corner. So that's on things like ESG right now, sustainability, but also the S of, uh, of ESG. Um, on what that means and how um, business has to create social value. That's been a bit of a project for me, so I can talk about that later as well, if you like. But consulting as a whole has to understand ESG, understand what that means for clients, what that means for their work. Uh, on the, you know, oh, and the other thing, you've got to keep on the tech transition this is going to get more complex, right? So we have to be all in. We have to be uh, understanding what the next set of technologies are. What's the next way to use artificial intelligence? And also how that meshes together with ethical and responsible governance. So lots of investment, lots of capability building so we can be truly helping clients get ahead in those areas. I think the other set of challenges there's sort of some internal ones as well, right? And how do we still be a terrific career of choice for a new generation? A new generation that maybe thinks there are other important things and working really hard, right? And doing everything, working long hours for client impact. And we have to learn from them as to what's important and how they want to work. Mm. And that's a bit confronting when you've got partners who've been around a long time doing things in a certain way. By the way, it's not just consulting. That's also law firms. That's also investment banks, private equity. Uh, but the way we all did it is not necessarily the way the next generation is going to do it. Right? And that will be quite a challenge, I think, for um, these firms to, to adjust. Yeah. And you know, it's great to look around at what uh, the team here at McKinsey is doing on those fronts. It's way uh, more ambitious and better than anything I did as, as office manager here. Uh, but I do think there's always going to be more to do. And we have to be very uh, aware of all issues from things like mental health, true inclusiveness and belonging, not just diversity, and uh, how we show up, our 
um, how we are with each other as colleagues and then how we show up to clients. Mm. And you mentioned the sustainability um, piece and you know, broader societal issues that um, companies are tackling. And, and of course, you were kind enough to join us and a room full of executives in November 19 to, dis to discuss this passion project of yours, which is around you know, corporates for good and sustainability and, and, the, and these things. And I know that you do a lot of work with CEOs and stakeholders who want to be building businesses with purpose. Um, and you recently took a sabbatical from McKinsey to delve more deeply into that topic, didn't you? And then obviously COVID struck. I mean, have you been able to do as much research and work on this as you'd have liked, obviously given COVID? And, and if so, have you had any sort of pertinent insights that you can share with us? Thanks, Annika. Yeah, this is uh, something that I've always been curious about, uh, how companies, businesses have, have uh, impact with all stakeholders. So that's environmental, it's social, it's communities, customers, employees, as well as being great for investors. Right, so this has to be an and. And I was always curious about it. Um, after handing over the office manager role here to Angus, I had the terrific opportunity of going to do a year's sabbatical to explore that. And one of the ways I did it was collaborating with UTS. I was an industry professor at the business school there. And also in other ways, like the Climate Leaders Coalition and working with a few other organizations. So I'd, I'd say it was a year of learning for me, a slightly different year given COVID then came and uh, I couldn't do some of the international travel that I was hoping to and work with, you know, Harvard or INSEAD and, and those places. But I did learn a lot here, particularly from convening and collaborating uh, different parts of the system. So I would say, yes, I think I learned a lot. I am convinced now that if companies want to be successful for their shareholders in the long term, they have to make sure all their stakeholders do very well. And I'll include the environment, the planet, as one of those key stakeholders. And there's enough research around, and I can get into it in detail if anyone's interested offline, to show that as some proof now um, that it will give you higher shareholder returns. But it's very hard. It's very hard to do this. It's very hard to focus a company on your environmental and social impact and do that in a way that is beneficial to shareholders too. And the, one of the frameworks that uh, I came up with on the sabbatical was showing there are sort of four levels companies uh, go through. And of course, they're taking initiatives at multiple levels, but there's always a center of gravity where they're at. And just to share those briefly, so level one is just don't do bad stuff, right? This is Commissioner Haynes' first recommendation, obey the law. But it's also things like don't hurt people, don't damage the environment, don't um, dodge your taxes, don't pay supplies late, lots of don't discriminate, you know, lots of, lots of don'ts. But you kind of have to do that. That's table stakes. You'd like to think every business in the land was a level one. But sadly, through things like royal commissions, we find out that some of them aren't. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of effort being applied in Australia today just to make sure everyone's at level one. But obviously, that's not enough. Um, we talk now about level two, which is starting to do some good. And that good is, you know, it's great, right? Because it's uh, reflecting your purpose and it is benefiting people whether through corporate social responsibility, whether it's through philanthropy, as some of the corporates have terrific foundations attached to them that do a lot of good work. 
It could be through pro bono. So a consulting firm like McKinsey would do a lot of pro bono uh, work. And, and these are all good things to do. Don't get me wrong, right? Everybody should be doing some good in the communities where they operate and for key stakeholder groups and beneficiaries. The problem with level two is it's usually a bit separate from the core, from the core business. So your foundation may be really good at distributing hundreds of millions of dollars a year, but it's off to the side of where the money is made. Or your pro bono works good when you get staffed on it, but what about the rest of the time? Mm. When you're on you know, a legal case, if you're in a law firm, but it's very different clients or consulting firm. So because it's separate, it can sometimes lead to issues too, where the company isn't authentic. It's doing all this good work on one hand, but on the other hand, there's some serious issues which are actually damaging the environment or damaging um, some of the key community groups. And we all know examples of that uh, in, in recent sort of months and years. So when I look for where I think companies need to get to, I call this level three, which is integrating into the DNA, right? Integrating into how a company truly works and functions, that purpose and that ESG aligned purpose that they have. Because you get a lot of companies, almost every company will have a purpose. Hmm. But that purpose, you know, if it's off to the side, if it's just some words on the wall, right? It doesn't really count for much. That's more like the level, level two. Level three is when you embed it into, for example, the way you recruit people, what do you look for? The way you pay people, right? What, what's your revenue strategy? And is that linked just to profitability or is it also linked to some tangible outcomes in line with your purpose and stakeholder outcomes? How you allocate capital? So do you have carbon priced into? And what about scope three? Is that priced into your investment approval logic? Uh, it's about the products that you're in and out of. You know, famous case, CVS Pharmacy had a purpose about helping people lead healthier lives, but they sold tobacco. So what did they do? They got out of tobacco. They took it out of their stores. And that cost them $2 billion of revenue. Mm. $2 billion, think of that. But you know what? If they wanted to get to level three, that's the sort of thing they have to do to be authentic and living that purpose. Uh, so I think most companies have a CVS Pharmacy tobacco and have they acted on it yet? Will they act on it, even if it costs them money? Uh, so this is what level three then is all about. And it's truly living and embedding in, in your DNA. Mm. And then level four, which, you know, there's not many people there yet, but this is where you convene across the boundaries. So mm. you have to work with other businesses, you work with NGOs, not-for-profits, all sorts of governments, and you actually have more action together as part of a bigger consortium. So I think when we finally, you know, get around to really tackling scope three emissions in a big way, it will have to be through level four because you can't just do that as one company that has to be with your value chain, suppliers and customers. But equally teaming up with an NGO on topics like water, for example, or with the government, I think there's a lot of impact businesses can have. So mm. four levels, level one, don't do the bad stuff. Level two, start doing some good, even though it's often separate. Level three, right? That's really where I'd love everyone to have the conversations, what that means for them. That's embedding into the way the company works, ESG and their purpose, mm. aligning everything there. Mm. So you believe that companies can increase shareholder value whilst getting to level three and four? 
oh, I think if anyone's interested, I could go through some logic showing 4% <laughs> return on assets a year if you get to level three, if you truly embed your purpose. Mm. Uh, so I do. And in fact, if you look at cases where sadly they hadn't done so, then the shareholders are often the ones that would suffer. Mm. So if I look at things like, you know, a few years ago now, but Volkswagen uh, had a, a scandal where they were, they were fixing their emissions testing, right? So they were rigging, if you like, the diesel emissions testing, and that came out. Their share price dropped by 30%. If you look at the financial industry in Australia, between the interim and the final report of the Hain Royal Commission, all those prices went down, right? All that. So if you don't do this, I think it's very risky for shareholder value. Mm. So I just really urge business to be thinking now, all right, how do we get on the right path here? And, uh, you know, we've probably got to do it quite quickly. We can't yeah. be dragged there when something goes wrong. We need to be proactive and get yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, I've certainly been talking to a number more, well, a lot more CEOs who are very committed to being purpose-driven like Deanne Stewart, who I know that yeah. you, you often meet with. She was on the last series of the podcast talking about this topic. But um, how do you think Australian businesses are tracking when compared to the rest of the world? Yeah, I mean, it is great to have leaders like Deanne, by the way, and there's a few others as well in Australia who are uh, absolutely either, they're, they're making action, but what I like more is they're curious about the possibilities. I love that curiosity in the, uh, when I see that in a CEO. Uh, I think we are very committed and very engaged in Australia now in this topic. And I do thank Industry Super, actually, for one, being one force, which is, uh, which is dragging us there, so people like aware. Uh, we're, we're probably coming to it a little bit later than, say, Scandinavia or some, most of Europe actually was. So we probably are. Um, so the, uh, you know, we've got momentum now. So use it or lose it, right? Mm. We've got momentum, use it or lose it. And uh, this is now, I think, for business to take the lead. Mm. And we're seeing it. So the Climate Leaders Coalition, which um, you know, is led by the B Team Australia, and I'm fortunate enough to co-chair that with David Bodie and you know, Lynette Main, who, who leads the B Team over here. That's got 25 companies, all big companies that are committed to climate action. And the CEOs come together and they uh, help each other, help each other get there. Um, so I think that's one of the good examples of how businesses can take action themselves don't have to wait for everything to be perfect let's get on with this mm. but there's probably more in individual companies as well yeah just help them be curious about what's possible mm. do you think that some leaders though are more hesitant to take sort of big purpose-driven risks yeah it's uh, I, I think so and obviously everyone's situation is different depends on the business that you're in and also your relationship with the board with your investors so this has to happen in the context of a system. That's been my biggest learning over the last year or two. It can't just be business that makes this transition. It has to be in the context of, you know, investors, regulators, unions, government, not-for-profits, indigenous, media. All, all of this has to come together if business is going to make the transition. Mm. So the first, the first thing I'd, I love to help companies do uh, boards and executives is see the bigger system that they're operating in. And then there's a lot on, you know, how, how you lead. 
if you wait until you've got the right answer, if that's your culture, because everyone has to have the right answer and we don't tolerate failure, you have to hit your targets, then I think in a massively complex area like this, that's a real problem mm. because it's very hard to know when you've got the right answer. This is one of those complex areas where you have to be taking experiments and trying things and sensing things and seeing what works and scale it up quickly, seeing what doesn't work and learn from it. So I think the leaders who are going to do better in this space are the ones who can operate like that. Um, and that's not just a factor of their personal style. That's also a factor of the board, the investors, the whole system that they operate with it. Mm. And if someone's not a key decision maker, can they still start to make impact in their businesses? Oh, I think for sure. Right? I, in fact, they, they sort of have to. And that's the difference with a level three company, because if you have embedded in a purpose, an ESG, into the way your company works, then every single person who's out there selling life insurance, right, or every single person who's out there with a, you know, a, a daily mind plan for where we mine, they are embodying how the company does with purpose of ESG in their actions. Mm. Right? So everyone has to make a difference and it is all of our responsibility, I think. Mm. And what are the other sort of big topics um, on the minds of and the agendas of today's CEOs, do you think? And there's plenty of them too, right? Wow, I'm uh, not jealous of the complex issues that they, they face. I think technology and the tech transition yeah. is, a, is a big one for everybody whatever sector you're in. Um, I, I think that, you know, how we come back, right? How we come back from COVID and what happens this year, I mean, colleagues in McKinsey, you know, call it the great acceleration, right? And uh, I think that's right. So what will that look like? Hopefully it won't be a snap back to what it was before. What are the great learnings that we can carry into what the future looks like? So I think that's a big issue as well. And then the whole, the whole area of talent, capabilities, and culture are more and more, right? That's uh, on the minds of CEOs. Mm. And again, they're all related, right? Because if you're uh, working in a new way with new technology and different set of stakeholders, then you're going to need different capabilities in your organization, not just technical ones, but a more adaptive ability to lead and think in different arenas. Mm. And John, I, I hear on the grapevine that after 25 years at McKinsey, I understand that you've now made the decision to, to leave the firm. What's prompted that decision and what's next for you? Thanks, Erica. Well, you know, this was incredibly hard, incredibly hard decision because I have loved, you can probably tell, I Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've loved that 25 years and I'm incredibly, incredibly grateful that, you know, some guy that from a small you know, town in South Lincolnshire can end up, you know, in Australia with McKinsey, having all this impact and this wonderful fun and, and uh, learning. So uh, it's torn. You know, I'm 51, right? I've had 25 wonderful years. I've really loved it. And uh, I just thought, it was 4th of March, actually, my 25th anniversary, uh, exactly 25 years from when I post-MCF walked through the door of London office on 4th March 96. Uh, I thought that's quite a symbolic day <laughs> and it's a day to make a choice. And, uh, you know, I wanted to, I saw this spectre of maybe I'm 61, right? And I'm looking back on 35 wonderful years at McKinsey. And that, that would have been great too. 
I thought I always wonder what else could have been possible, what else was out there. So that was, you know, that was what, and you know, what made it so hard is I came back from my sabbatical, you know, last year with a, a real purpose. And I'd say my personal purpose is clearer than it's ever been any time in my life. I used to think I had a purpose to help build a prosperous and inclusive Australia and all that. Now it's actually, I've got a sharper and clearer one, which is I will help business evolve to create value for all stakeholders and through that, better value for shareholders. Right? So, and I include the environment in, in all stakeholders. That's what I'm going to do. I know I can do it. And you know what made it so hard, Annika, this decision? I could have done that at McKinsey. It's an obvious place. What a great place to do it, right? With the firm's superpower, our client relationships, our new global priority, a new global MD who's a terrific, Bob Sternfels, right? Terrific friend and has been a historic mentor and sponsor to me. Would have been so obvious, right? To do it there. And that's what tears me apart. But if I didn't make that call and I made it before Bob got elected, I thought I'd better... Uh, so I called on, you know, the 5th of March or whatever it was and said, uh, look, I think it's time for me to go by the end of the year. And that's what I'll do. Uh, then I, I knew I would have had lots of impact, and lots of fun and lots of learning within the firm. But I'd always be wondering what else might have been out there. Yeah. That I didn't do. So I suppose it's that curiosity coming to uh, coming back to bite me again. But I hope it's a really positive curiosity. And, uh, you know, I'm still around in McKinsey for another six months, right? But by the end of the year, I won't be. And, uh, yeah, that is going to, I think, be a huge time of opportunity and continued learning. That's mm. the most important part. Well, it must feel um, good to have made the decision, even though it must have been very tough. Tough, yeah, tough decision. But, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, energised now by yeah. the possibilities. But always, by the way, always have this immense respect for the firm of course. and uh, the gratitude for it's given me and the best days of McKinsey are ahead of it. Yeah. I won't be looking back on those great days when John Lydon was managing partner because we will go on to massively greater things as part of this firm. Oh goodness. Yeah. It must be a, uh, must be a big moment for you, but um, <laughs> I mean, you, you and I have known each other for, for quite a while now and um, you've been very gracious enough to speak at many events for me and, various different things over the years. And I think some are quite surprised by that, given, given what we do, namely place consultants into, into new roles. Um, some would think you'd want to stay as far away from us as possible, but uh, you have a very different perspective on how we may add value to the sector, as well as the lives of current and, and former consultants, don't you? Yeah, no, and uh, again, if you're solving for the big picture and you're solving for the system, right? Even even the great McKinsey can't build an amazing Australia, right? We have to have other people doing that too. And I'd say some of the highlights of consulting beyond the client work, you know, I love seeing other people succeed. I obviously love it when I see clients succeed. Everyone does. But people being elected partner, I love seeing that. But I also love people leaving for great roles and then doing incredibly well. And some of the people that, in fact, you've interviewed a lot of them for your podcast, they were and could have been wonderful McKinsey partners and could have still been. They would have been better office managers than me, most of them. But aren't they doing so incredibly well? Leading organizations, having tons of impact and tons of fun. So what you do is invaluable. And uh, the way Oak Tree does it, I think, is also because this is what you focus on and you get to know strategy consulting and the transition out. 
you know, very well. I think, I think you do it very well as a result. Thank <laughs> Thanks very much. Um, um, many leaders who we speak to in high pressure environments um, usually have specific high performance routines that they can employ to keep their minds and bodies, you know, tip top, um, be it exercise or, or whatever. But um, over the years, have you adopted any specific routines that have, have really worked for you? Yeah, it's funny, you know, because I wouldn't have thought they were routines, but they are. So now running is the big thing for me. Like running, I get out and run. I was there yesterday morning, this morning. I just love the freedom of it and getting out. It's obviously physical exercise, but it's actually mental exercise as well. It's where I do a lot of thinking. Um, meditation, which I don't do every day, but a few times a week. It's like when I need it, I know I need it. So short um, meditation on gratitude and compassion actually is what I do. I think that's right. And then maybe it's a routine, but learning. You know, always looking to learn. There's so much, I love learning. I, I love it much more today than I ever did. At school, I was more interested in running the latest entrepreneurial venture and making it quick, you know, so I'm a university, but I know I love learning and there's so much out there, learning from people in the unlikeliest situations and not-for-profits and all sorts of places. So I always give myself every week, I make sure I'm learning and I make sure I'm making connections for other people so they can learn. And that's as much as a routine now that I sort of track myself off as any of the running or meditation or any of the others. Mm, amazing. And if you were to go back in time and have a conversation with a younger John, say a 20 something John, what advice would you give yourself? You know, the funny thing is I probably wouldn't want to change too much. So I'm not sure the advice would actually be constructive because I think I've been lucky. I've been really lucky and I wouldn't want any advice which might destabilize that luck that, uh, <laughs> that I had. Um, look, I would say uh, there were probably times earlier in my consulting career where I was trying to be what I thought I should be and not being myself. And that probably came as a reaction. That early feedback, that was because I was too much being myself, right? And then I had to learn. <laughs> I had to learn what McKinsey actually did and get good at it, which I did. I got elected. But then I still probably, it took a few years as a partner before I was much more comfortable with being myself, truly who I was, what I valued, and not what you think the expectation of others is. And I find I'm in better in service of others by being that. So no one really loses. It's not like I ignore other people. I can actually be better for other Mm. myself so that's the only thing now i think that's impractical advice for a 20 year old to be honest um but it might be the only thing that i uh, i could think of but other than that you know what i've learned along the way what i've learned from the mistakes i've made boy i wouldn't have wanted to miss out on those mistakes right because mm. that's what i really learned when i look back on them they were good times too yeah i mean what advice would you give to other management consultants then in terms of how to think about their careers well, it's, you know, don't think too much about your career, I suppose. Yeah. I, I remember that I, uh, Diane Smith-Gander on your podcast. Diane's a great uh, inspiration to me, by the way, who's uh, been a huge... Fabulous, in yeah. My career. But she yeah, said, yeah, just don't plan it. You don't know. Be, be um, purposeful about, you know, what it is you want to do, the difference you want to make in the world. That's fine. But don't be too, like, tactical. I got to do two years here and then a strategy role there and then go on to a line role here. Because I think you restrict yourself. Mm. All that stuff will come. All that That's will come. Just definitely follow. a consistent yeah. message I've been hearing is just don't overthink it too much. <laughs> don't overthink it. Do try and figure out, you know, 
do you have a purpose and what's your personal purpose as distinct from your organization's purpose or what you feel you should do or values or any of that? What's your personal purpose? Why are you here? Why yeah. are you on this planet right now? Because I think if you can, and you don't get that when you're 20 either. I think you have to be exposed to lots of different forces for that to, you know, settle. Mm. But if, if you've got it and you really got the conviction that this is what it is, then that's what you've got to live. Yeah. Whether that's in consulting, outside consulting, it doesn't matter. That's what you've got to do because that's mm. why you're here. So I encourage everyone just to give that a little bit of thought when they're, you know, running or whatever it is, whatever the thing you do. Have a little bit of thought on your purpose and why you're here. And obviously you said you love learning. <laughs> so I always ask guests for a read, listen to or watch recommendation, something that's inspired you along your journey. What can you share with us? Oh, wow, Annika, there's so many. Uh, <laughs> where do I start? Look, I'll probably get in trouble from not just, you know, McKinsey, but also all other consulting firms with this recommendation I'm going to make um, because it's a bit countercultural, actually. Um, it's a book by a gentleman named Edgar Schein, S-C-H-I-E-N. And Edgar is a, a professor at MIT for years. He's 90 now. Um, I actually saw him at the Mobius Next Practice Institute about 18 months ago. He's still in great form. But his book is called Humble Consulting. And all consultants, I reckon, should read it. You might just be a little bit thrown off balance by it. That's the warning. It might question some of the things that that evaluation or election committee is asking you to do. But I tell you what, it's a great education in how to really help, how to really help clients, how to really help colleagues. Um, so humble consulting by Edgar Schein. I will probably get in a lot of trouble, but um, yeah, give it a go. Hey, you don't have to agree with it, right? You just got to read it. It's a perspective. They're not all right, but it might be helpful. Oh, amazing. Thank you. And is there any other last words of wisdom that you can share with the younger generation of consultants? You see, I, I think it's the other way around, Annika. McKinsey yep. is an apprenticeship culture, always has been, and I've had been an apprentice all my life, right? Um, and I've had apprenticeship from, you know, my engagement manager who rescued me and the partners that I worked with who put me into situations and showed me how to lead and all of that. But you know what? These days, I get apprenticeship from the next generation, not from the last one. I get some from the last one as well, but my major source of apprenticeship and learning is from the next generation. So no words of wisdom, but more an expectation that I'd like to continue getting wisdom from you. And I hope to uh, be uh, using that in sensible ways to have impact and, you know, maybe have a bit of fun as well. Excellent. Great. Well, John, good luck with your, well, six months left at McKinsey's and then on to a next chapter of your career. So good luck with that. And certainly exciting times ahead, ahead, ahead of, of you. Um, you mentioned earlier, if um, anyone wanted to reach out around extra data points, et cetera, they can do that. Yeah. Look, always happy to have conversations about uh, particularly how uh, businesses can achieve a lot more for all stakeholders and shareholders. Always happy to. Yeah, excellent. John, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure and I appreciate you doing this. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye.
Thank you so much for listening to the Strategy Bites podcast, bringing strategy career advice to the market. But please do remember that first and foremost, Oaktree Talent is a specialist strategy and transformation recruitment agency. So if you're a top tier consultant or want to hire excellent strategy capability, please get in touch.